You are listening to Paranormal Probe with Trip Tanfell. everybody and welcome back to the paranormal probe podcast as we dive into show number three i'm trip tanfell at the 10 step studios and i hope you're all having a good week as we move into our show today i'd like to tell you how excited i am about our episode today it's all about bigfoot i've been a fan of bigfoot research for a long time now i'm sad to say i don't actually believe in bigfoot because even though there are thousands of sightings all over the world there is still no hard evidence to prove the existence of bigfoot there is no conclusive evidence of dead bodies hair tissue or even bones although i should add that even scientists admit that since bigfoots live in moist forest atmospheres bodies and bones can disintegrate quickly which is the same for monkeys and chimpanzees The reason I'm excited about the research is because science shows that there is an evolution of man. There is hard evidence, fossil evidence, that proves man evolved from apes. Bigfoots are described as half man and half ape, and apes share 99% of human DNA. And by the way, as a side note, there are several names for Bigfoot depending on where you are in the world. For instance, in Canada, they're called Sasquatch. In Asia, they're called Yetis. In Australia, they're called Yowies. And there are many more, but I'll call them all Bigfoots. That's one of my favorites. There are five stages that make up our human lineage that started with primates and eventually became Homo sapiens over a 25 million year period. The problem is that no one has been able to find the last common ancestor, which is what we call the missing link. This is the link that would confirm the jump from apes to mankind science has been able to pretty much determine where the missing links lived and what they probably looked like but that's where the trail goes cold therefore i believe there's an excellent chance that if we could find the hardcore evidence that bigfoots are real this might also fill in that missing piece of the puzzle that will show the jump from ancient animals to the unique features of the beginning of modern man And by the way, I'd like to quickly address the many TV shows that insist they have proof of Bigfoot every time they're in the woods and they hear a wood knock or a tree branch break or even an owl burp. Please ignore those shows. Remember that they will do or say whatever they have to just to get ratings. If you want to hear about real research being done to find the missing link, then stick to documentaries or studies that are actually conducted by scientists. What we're going to concentrate on during this show are the more credible sightings and evidence that are about these creatures that are still unidentified by science. First, let's talk about the credible evidence that has been found. Of course, there are many thousands of foot castings of very large, unusual prints found in the ground. These prints can easily be faked, so I wait until after the prints have been analyzed by scientists. One of my favorite scientists is a professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University named Jeffrey Meldrum. He has one of the largest collections of plaster Bigfoot casts in the world, 
And when he investigates these castings, he examines them to find clues that include dermal ridges, which are the lines in the skin that we call fingerprints. He is also an accomplished expert at bipedal locomotion, so he inspects these footprints to see if they can offer clues that are consistent with the way the foot bends during strides, the positioning of the toes, and the shape of the balls of the feet and the heels of the foot. He performs a very comprehensive analysis. There are other notable scientists as well, but Jeffrey Meldrum is at the top of my list because he's known as one of the world's leading experts on Bigfoot. Another form of evidence are hair samples. Hairs from people and different animals all have their own unique characteristics. Hair has an inner layer called the medulla, which can help identify where the hair came from. Unfortunately, it seems most of the time, hair samples that are collected are eventually identified as belonging to bears, deer, goats, or other animals. Now, I have seen some reports that claim there are hair samples that are truly unidentified, but this still doesn't confirm that they are from a Bigfoot. There is also newer technology that is now being used to help find Bigfoot DNA in water, and it's called eDNA. It's basically collecting samples from a specific environment. Since all animals need a food and water source, including Bigfoots, Water samples are extracted from streams, lakes, or rivers, and then analyzed in a lab to determine what forms of animal life are in that area. One of the downfalls of this technology is that the DNA that might be left in the water only lasts a couple of weeks, so the collection of the water sample has to be recovered very quickly after a Bigfoot has been in the water. The last form of evidence I'd like to mention is video or photographs. While there are some videos and pictures that can grab your attention, the fact is that almost all of that type of evidence is inconclusive at best. You would think that in this day and age where everyone has a cell phone, and the cell phone never leaves your side, and the cameras on these phones produce extremely high quality images, that somebody somewhere would have a crystal clear photograph or video of a Bigfoot. However, I've seen none and I read about or watch reports of Bigfoot sightings on a regular basis. Now that we've covered the most common techniques to try to collect Bigfoot DNA, let's move on to what I consider to be some of the most intriguing Bigfoot stories. I'm not going to cover the Patterson-Gimlin film from 1967 because everyone has already seen this footage for a long time and efforts to either authenticate or debunk the film have failed. Although this event played an important role in bringing the possibility of Bigfoot into the mainstream media, nothing else has actually developed from this story, so we're going to move past this one. The first story we are going to cover is the Bigfoot of Battle Mountain. Okay, now this was a story about a Bigfoot that was badly injured in a forest fire. He was actually severely burned. The fire was a very large fire in the wilderness back in 1999 in Battle Mountain, Nevada. The Bigfoot was apparently treated and then secretly taken by helicopter out of the forest. The only reason anyone ever heard about this story is because after the event happened, a letter was mailed to the BFRO in Nevada, which is the Bigfoot Research Organization, by a government employee who is believed to be from the Forestry Service. The anonymous government employee stated that he personally witnessed these events and saw the animal, which he describes as an ape. Several agencies were called, including a local vet, a medical doctor, 
the Department of Fish and Wildlife, the Department of the Interior, and the Bureau of Land Management. The animal was tranquilized and quickly transported out of the area, and all of those who witnessed this incident, which was about 30 people, were ordered not to talk to anyone about what they saw. The animal was described as being almost eight foot tall and covered in brownish hair with mostly human features, including a face that looked like a combination of human and ape. The hands were about one and a half times larger than an adult human hand, and the feet were also very large. Attempts to communicate with the animal failed, although it did moan due to the high levels of pain it was in. The BFRO tried to uncover more facts and evidence about this case, but were intentionally blocked by government agencies. The only information they could confirm is that there was in fact a large fire in the Battle Mountain area at that time and it consumed about 180,000 acres of forest. Attempts were made by the BFRO to contact this witness, but they were unsuccessful. Then a couple of weeks later, the witness called the BFRO with more information. Of course, the witness demanded anonymity because he was afraid he would lose his job and be subject to harassment and retaliation by the government agents. He said the animal, or Bigfoot, was so badly injured that he basically conceded to the medical professionals so they would help him. The witness claimed that the vet that was on site let the medical doctor take over the treatment because the animal looked so human-like. The doctor then administered tranquilizers. When they placed the injured animal on the stretcher, he was so big that parts of his body hung over on all sides. He was also too big for an ambulance, so he was placed in a utility truck to be removed from the area. The time frame from the discovery of the Bigfoot to the time of transport was about three hours. The unidentified being was sent to an undisclosed medical facility for further treatment, and it's believed it is most likely being kept in confinement for scientific study. Apparently, long after the fires were extinguished, there were investigators that went to the scene with intentions of collecting samples of blood, tissue, or anything else that might confirm this story, but the entire area had been bulldozed over. All workers that had been at the site were reportedly ordered to sign a confidentiality agreement under penalty of felony arrest and imprisonment, not to mention immediate loss of employment and benefits including retirement options. So that's where the story ends because anyone who could expose details about what actually happened were intimidated and threatened if they would step forward to confirm this report. If you want to read more about this story for yourself, you can search for The Bigfoot of Battle Mountain. It's a captivating report that has a lot of specific detail, so in my opinion, this could very likely be a factual incident. Check it out for yourself and see what you think. All right, well, I hope you're ready for more because next I'm going to take you to an oil field in Alberta, Canada. This next Bigfoot sighting is actually in two parts. The first part is the actual encounter that was captured on video, and then the second part is a detailed investigation of the video, which reveals a lot about the encounter. This takes us to Alberta, Canada in 2015. And by the way, there are a lot of great reports out of Canada, probably because of the huge amount of wilderness up there. Also, I actually saw the video of this encounter when I first began my review of this case. But then I went back to find the video to re-examine the footage and mysteriously the video had been taken down. 
I can't find the complete video posted anywhere, but I did find an abbreviated video that will take us to the second part of my story, which includes some mathematical calculations to shed light on the possible authenticity of the original video. Okay, now as I watched the original video, it showed a group of workers in Alberta, Canada, and they were getting ready to begin work to clear some of the forest for an oil field development. You could hear several of the workers talking and they seemed to have taken up positions behind their vehicles. They were talking about the loud beast-like screams coming from the forest and then one of the men made a comment that they could see the beast. The camera then focuses on the forest and you can see what mostly looks like a large ape down on all fours, but of course the footage is not very clear and it's hard to make out what is actually out there. This concerned me a little because the camera technology in cell phones was very good in 2015. There was really no reason I can think of for the video quality to be so poor, so I originally assumed that this must be a fake report. The video shows an ape-like creature at the edge of the forest, and it picks up a tree that was laying on the ground and throws it, almost sidearm like you typically see apes throw, towards some oil field workers. I didn't really think much of it. In fact, I almost dismissed it and moved on to another case, but then I discovered another video, which caused me to change my mind and continue to pursue this incident. The new video I saw was posted by a site called ThinkerThunker, so you can look that up if you have a chance. And it does show the parts of the original video where the creature throws the tree, and the narrator of the video does a great job of analyzing the event. He made several great observations and then developed a plausible explanation which made me believe the story as it was originally reported. First, the narrator calculates that the tree the creature threw was close to four times longer than the size of the animal's torso, which he estimated to be three foot long. Now, I think the estimate might be a little bit small, but the great thing about his calculation is that it's scalable. If the animal is smaller or even larger, then you can almost accurately recalculate the total length of the tree. So in his explanation, the creature is roughly six foot tall, the torso is three feet, and the tree is four times longer than the torso, which makes the tree 12 feet in length. Then he goes on to a log weight calculator, which I have never heard of, but I guess it makes sense that for those in the logging industry, that there would be a weight calculator based on the type of the tree and its dimensions. The area in that forest was covered by aspen trees, so that's what he entered into the calculator. He also entered what I think are reasonable estimates on the tree's diameter from end to end. Based on the dimensional information, and the tree being an aspen tree, the calculator estimated the weight of the tree to be about 51 pounds. Again, this seems very reasonable to me. I wasn't sure exactly where he was going with this explanation yet, but I agreed with all of his estimates so far. Then he does something very interesting for his next comparison. In Canada, they have strongman competitions, which includes throwing dead weights to see who can throw the weight the farthest distance. He videotaped two guys who were in training for a well-known event in Canada called the Highland Games. Now these guys are both obviously very athletic and physically fit with big muscles and the weight they're throwing is 56 pounds. After several throws, one of the guys who uses the twirling method to take advantage of centrifugal force has the longest throw which is about 20 to 22 feet which I'm basing on his height being about 6 foot. 
Then, when you watch the video of the Bigfoot throwing the tree, it clearly shows a straight throw without using centrifugal force. As I mentioned earlier, it's like he's throwing a spear, but throwing in a sidearm fashion. The distance the animal throws the tree appears to be in the neighborhood of 35 or 40 feet, and he was able to launch it up in the air about 12 or 15 feet or so. So this seems to validate that the animal appears to have superhuman strength when you compare the two videos. This really is an incredible story and based on some very reasonable mathematical calculations, so definitely look this one up. Just search for Alberta Canada Oilfield Bigfoot and the narrations by the guy at Thinker Thunker. This one will make you think real hard about what it might have been out there in the forest on that day. As we move forward, we travel to the Pacific Northwest in Washington State. We're going to jump forward in time to a story that was reported back in 1980 when Mount St. Helens erupted. It's important to keep several things in mind. One, there have been many reported Bigfoot sightings and very large foot imprints found all over the Mount St. Helens area for a long time. Some of these reports go back into the 1800s. Two, Mount St. Helens is a volcano, and prior to the 1980 eruption, it was the fifth largest peak in Washington state. Over many, many years, Mount St. Helens would become active and then go dormant, then active again and then dormant. This pattern seemed to continuously repeat itself over the years, and the mountain was going through visual transformations. New domes would form and new valleys would appear as the mountain was morphing due to the volcanic activity. Throughout history, the mountain actually erupted many times and this whole area was always being monitored and documented, so all of these details are well known. So we know that the Bigfoot sightings were a frequent occurrence, and we know that this is a volcano that had erupted many times in the past. Now let's concentrate on 1980. On March 20th in 1980, Mount St. Helens experienced an earthquake that registered 4.2 on the Richter scale. Now the Richter scale goes to 10, so while this 4.2 episode was strong, it wasn't anywhere near the top. Then, on March 27th, steam started venting from the mountain. On May 18th, a second earthquake occurred, and this time it was a 5.1 on the Richter scale, so it was obvious something was happening. There was a noticeable increase in activity, and this second quake caused a major collapse on the north side of the mountain. It was described as the largest avalanche of debris in recorded history. Then, magma started flowing out of the mountain and plumes of ash were spewing out of the mountain top and reaching 80,000 feet in the air. The ash was traveling so fast and so far that it quickly spread to over 11 states and reports started coming in that the ash was collecting in terms of inches on rooftops all the way up into Canada. The enormous amounts of ash would also alter air traffic. Airline pilots were ordered out of the area during this event because the ash was so heavy it would have clogged the jet engines and the airliners would have fallen out of the sky. The Mount St. Helens incident was a catastrophic event that is still considered to be the deadliest and most destructive eruption in U.S. history. If you are younger and unaware of this event, you can find pictures and video all over the internet that's really impressive, so you should check it out. Now let's go back a little and start to make our connection to the Bigfoot sightings in that area. 
Mount St. Helens had a lot of water, and in fact, there were glaciers on the mountainside, and it also had a lot of vegetation and tons of trees. This also means that there were a lot of animals, and this includes elk, deer, bears, and don't forget about all of those Bigfoot sightings. After the massive avalanche, there were many thousands of animals killed and injured either in the blast itself or from the aftermath, which included red-hot magma pouring down the mountain. So many animals were injured or died that rescuers from the Army Corps of Engineers and the National Guard were sent in to save as many as they could, but the dead animals were sorted into piles to be burned. Now this might sound cruel, but this was done so the rotting carcasses couldn't cause outbreaks of disease, and that would have caused a much bigger problem than they already had. As they were locating animals, reports started coming in that dead and injured Bigfoots had also been found. One of these reports indicated that there was a large pile of dead animals that had been collected, and they were being kept under a tarp, and this pile was being guarded by armed guards. Eventually, one witness was able to get close to that pile, and when he lifted up a part of the tarp, he saw that those dead animals were all Bigfoots. He described the animals as being hairy and ape-like, but with many human-like features. Large, heavy-duty cargo nets were brought in, and several of the rescuers were instructed to put the Bigfoot bodies on the nets. Then, unmarked helicopters were brought in and hoisted many of the bodies out of the area. Others were loading the Bigfoot bodies onto trucks and were taken away. Other reports say there were several Bigfoots that were alive and being treated in large medical tents that had been set up. It was also noted that a couple Bigfoots were trying to communicate with the military personnel, and the military was walking with the creatures to try to locate any other Bigfoots that may have survived. These Bigfoots were acting as if they were tame or docile. They were obviously needing help and were welcoming the rescuers to help them. A few more creatures were found alive, but most of that population had been decimated. Eventually, all of those on site were debriefed and were strongly instructed that they should forget about what they had seen and never talk to anyone about the activities they witnessed. It was explained to the witnesses that the U.S. military was well aware of the presence of Bigfoots in this region, and these animals posed no threat to humans. Their directive was to help the creatures in any way possible, and all information was deemed classified and top secret. Now we're going to travel to western Kentucky to an old coal mining town called Spotsville where there are several documented incidents of multiple Bigfoots that seemed to intentionally target an innocent family back in 1975. In Henderson, Kentucky, a family of eight who lived a quiet, simple, and peaceful life were harassed by a small population of Bigfoots that apparently had settled in that area. Shortly after the Nunnally family rented a farm, they noticed unusual things happening. They heard loud animal screams and growling coming from the woods near their property. Then, some of the chickens started to disappear. Soon after, a couple of the boys in the family discovered the bodies of several dead dogs in a nearby field, and the dogs had been disemboweled. Over a period of time, this family would lose many of their animals, including a large horse, and all of these animals seemed to have experienced brutal attacks. 
in the time frame of just over a year, they would lose over 250 animals. The sounds of some kind of wild animals continued to come from the woods and actually escalated. Then one day, the mother of this family was outside as nightfall was approaching, and she actually saw an eight or nine foot tall hairy creature that was standing upright like a human out in the yard, and it was staring right at her. She screamed and ran inside the house and called the state police. The police went to the property to investigate, but after looking around, they found no clues of any type of animal. They advised the family that the animal that they saw was likely a bear, and it was probably scared away by the screaming. The entire family continued to encounter the hairy, human-like creature, as did one of the neighbors. The police were repeatedly called and made many trips out to the farm, but they could never find any evidence to confirm what was being reported. Eventually, the police refused to go back to the Spotsville property as they were convinced these sightings were attributed to a bear or family of bears. The creatures continued to terrorize the family almost on a daily basis. Although most of the sightings happened at night, there were also occurrences in broad daylight. The Bigfoots would peer into windows, rattle the doors, and pound on the walls. And during one encounter, four of the family members spotted the creature and grabbed their shotguns. They positioned themselves on a rooftop and fired several rounds at one of the creatures. They were sure they hit the creature, but the gunfire didn't have any effect on the animal. Over many months of the Bigfoots intimidating the family and killing their animals, the local newspapers finally started reporting the encounters this family was having. But instead of getting support from the community, they were ridiculed. The only person who was willing to help this family was that one neighbor who had also witnessed the hairy monsters because he knew the stories were true. That neighbor described one incident when the unidentified animal was in the opening of a farm building and he spotted it from a distance. Then, right before his eyes, the Bigfoot disappeared. It simply vanished. The only evidence that was found was a large footprint that he made a cast of. This neighbor had also contacted the state police on several occasions, and he expected they would help protect him, his family, and his neighbors, but that wasn't the case. Instead, the police warned the man that these sightings must be bears in the area, and he was told it was illegal to shoot the bears. He was told if he shot the bears, he would be arrested, and the police department would make an example out of him, so he was actually threatened by the clueless law enforcement officers. These attacks lasted for over a year until the family had enough and decided to move. Screams and howls from the monsters are still being reported in surrounding areas today. Several members of the family have reported their experiences to newspapers and granted television interviews to detail their ordeal. One of the sons, Bart Nunnally, decided to become a paranormal investigator due to these life-changing events, and he's written a couple books about the encounters. Now, if you're interested in his first-hand testimony, you can look for the books. One's called Mysterious Kentucky, and the other one's called Bigfoot in Kentucky. Uh, there might be more, but those are the only two that I'm aware of, so check those out for more information. So, there you have it. That's the story of the Spotsville Monster in Henderson, Kentucky.
Now, this is another story that has a lot of great information online, including pictures, videos, interviews from eyewitnesses, and some from people who still choose to remain anonymous so they're not subject to insults and ridicule. I will say that from what I've seen, these people seem like very honest, sincere, and credible witnesses to me, and I've seen a lot on this story. It's pretty impressive. To see it for yourself, just search online for the Spotsville Monster in Henderson, Kentucky. And that wraps it up for show number three of Paranormal Probe featuring Bigfoot. As I mentioned earlier, Bigfoot is one of my favorite topics, and I would love to see real hard evidence surface someday to prove these Bigfoots are real. And as always, to share your stories or comments with us, you can email us at comments at paranormalprobe.com. Also, don't forget to tune in to our next podcast as we examine the many reports of lake monsters. Thanks for listening to Paranormal Probe, and I hope you enjoyed the podcast. I'm Trip Tanfell from the 10 Step Studios, and I hope you join us next time. <laughs>